There's a story about a pastor, a Russian pastor by the name of Alexander Men. He was uh, killed by an axe because of his adherence to the gospel. Two months before he died, he was on a radio program talking about what drew him to Christianity. This is what he said. Should we embrace a position that God has revealed and therefore can be found in any religion? No. Because then the uniqueness and absolute character of Christianity will disappear. I think that nothing will prove the uniqueness of Christianity except one thing. Jesus Christ himself. We read in the book of Acts, especially these first couple chapters, of thousands of people who were absolutely convinced of the uniqueness of Jesus Christ and his power to to forgive sins and to change lives. Now, we can complicate passages like this with some theological hair-splitting, but we cannot miss the force and the power that comes when a, a group of people are undone by their sin, but fully accepting and living under the truth of the gospel of Christ. And that's what I hope can take place for us. We're undone by our sin, but we are, are so devoted to the gospel and its, and its beauty uh, and its truth. That's what took place here in Acts. And that's why it's so dramatic. It's not the drama that I'm after, but it's that, that undoneness, that awesome consciousness of God that takes place when we realize the beauty of the gospel and then just let happen what's going to happen as a result. And we're reading about what happened to these folks in Acts 2. Let's stand as we take a look at it. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and awe came upon every soul And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Lord, I dare not put you in a box, I dare not demand, but I pray that you'll work, that you'll work in a powerful way in our lives, that you will work and intercede on behalf of this church. Lord, we desire for you to get great glory. We desire for you to transform lives. We desire for you to do big things. And may we not be afraid to expect you to do such. We invite your Holy Spirit to fill us, to fill this church. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship. And then we take a look at these last two factors, the breaking of bread and prayers. And as I talked about before, these four items are uh, extrapolated or expanded on in the rest of this passage, but these four items kind of make an outline for these several verses. 
They devoted themselves to a corporate worship that included these practices of breaking of bread and prayers. And breaking of bread, I'm I'm going to present to you as devoting themselves to regularly remembering their spiritual poverty without Christ through communion. Again, these are items mentioned were, were specific practices of the church that they did as they were filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, we would be hard-pressed, I think, to find any church that is healthy that does not have these items. I, and as, as I mentioned last week, I think it's easy for us to look at a church and say, man, I think, you know, what's a good church? Well, a good church has to have, you know, good this and that, and, you know, and normally we mention programs and, you know, skilled people in these areas and whatever, but these are the items that it has to flow out of. If you don't have these items, you cannot have a healthy church. So these are the, these are the basics. If you don't have the basics down, it doesn't matter what else you have in terms of, of programs, these have got to be in place. Now, breaking of bread is either a phrase that refers to eating a regular meal or having communion or both. Now, when communion is spoken of in 1 Corinthians 11, verses 23 through 27, for instance, it speaks of taking and, and eating the bread. And in Matthew 26, it says that Jesus took the, the bread and told his disciples to, to, to take it. It was his broken body that was given for them, a symbol of his broken body. Now, it was a common practice, we know, that the early church met in homes, and they would often have a, a fellowship meal and then have communion alongside that. And when the early church talked about breaking bread, it often included both of those. So when our passage in Acts speaks of breaking bread, it would seem odd that Luke was just talking about having a meal. I mean, it seems odd that he's giving an an injunction or saying one of the unique things that this church did, you know what they did? I mean, this is really unique. They got together and they ate food. I mean, it's got to be more than that, right? No, they, they, they acknowledge the, with sincere and humble hearts this idea of breaking bread or communion. They honored Christ as they met together by taking the bread and wine in remembrance of Christ and what he did on the cross. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. In other words, this has significant meaning when you take those elements. Now, certainly we understand that the communion is not an option. It's an ordinance commissioned by Christ, sanctioned by the apostles for the church to observe. And when he says, this do in remembrance of me, he's talking about continuously doing this, continue to do this. When Christ took the bread and wine with the disciples during the Last Supper, he said, do this in remembrance of me. And uh, there have been several interpretations of that through church history. And I've covered this before, but uh, I think what Christ means is we remember this. And I don't, I'm not sure that's really hard to understand. I mean, if I were to, to take my phone and I were to show you a picture right there and I'd say, well, uh, right there, 
you can't see it because everything's covered it up, but I would show you a picture of my wife, and I'd say, this is my wife. Now, you're not going to say to me, is that really Janet Short in, in terms of, is that digital photo her? No, you understand that's just a photo. That's not literally my wife standing before you. It's just a digital photo. But, but we use that language, you know, this is my wife when I show you a, a, a picture. And in the same way when, when Christ said, this is my body, he's saying this is representative of my body. This is my blood. There's a, there's a greater truth that's represented by these elements. Remembrance means to simply bring to mind. We bring to mind the purpose of Christ's coming, the suffering of Christ, the love that caused him to be there on that cross. We remember that. We remember the gravity of our sin that put him there. And we read where he says, Christ does, he does this for you, do this in remembrance, and he says, it's, it's for you. It's for you. Those are powerful words. The redemptive plan of God is so that we could benefit, that we could have our sins forgiven. And even as I roll those words out, it's just like, eh, ho-hum, yeah, forgiven a sin. Move on to something deeper, will you, okay? We get that. Whoa, 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 whoa. See, we... we <laughs> I don't think we understand quite what it would mean to not have our sins forgiven. I think it's easy for us to forget, maybe for some of us that were older when we came to Christ, you remember what it was like to live with the shame and the guilt of sin. And even as a Christian, when you forget that and you're overcome by a particular sin and that shame and guilt just overwhelms you until you come back to the cross, you realize how important forgiveness is and to live in light of that on a daily basis. And perhaps one of the reasons that we're to remember communion is to remember the forgiveness, to remember the grace, to remember where we would be without him. He did this for you. Amen. He was beaten for you. He was spit upon for you. He had a, a crown of thorns put upon him for you. He was ridiculed for you. He, he bled for you. He had nails put in his hands and feet for you. We are to recognize him by our spiritual poverty that we would be in without him and by the, the sacrifice that he gave on our behalf to fulfill God's redemptive plan for us, for you. The passage in 1 Corinthians speaks of self-examination as we approach the elements. It's a, to be a regular reminder of our sin that caused Christ to die. And by approaching communion with, with humility, we realize what it means is just being honest about where we would be without him, about being honest about our sin. And often those that don't know or, or don't, don't come to faith in Christ will often just diminish the effects of sin or their guiltiness. But where else are you going to go for forgiveness? 
Where else can you go to have that shame lifted? We're not in a position to demand or to dictate. When we take communion, we realize the the humble position we are in uh, and how we were, were beggars and Christ met the need. I love the story of Samuel Kabu Moros, who was a Liberian prince who came to Christ when he was 14. And when he was 18, he went to a Christian college in Indiana called Taylor University. When the president of the university was showing him around the dorm rooms, he said to the president, if there is a room that nobody wants, give that to me. A prince. I mean, he deserved honor. He deserved the best. But no, give me the place that nobody wants. Somehow he had learned humility. And that humility led that college president to turn his head and tears filled his eyes. And he realized that that this man had obviously had an encounter with God and God had humbled him. And really, isn't that the state we all need to be in? And isn't that one of the purposes of communion to remind us as we examine our lives, I examine the, the anger, the lust, the, 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 the bitterness and the other things that come into our hearts and yet Christ forgives. It's an amazing thing. Dietrich, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, said this, only the humble believe him and rejoice that God is so free and so marvelous that he does wonders where people despair, that he takes what is little and lowly and makes it marvelous. And what is the wonder of all wonders? That God loves the lowly. God is not ashamed of the lowliness of human beings. God marches right in. He chooses people as his instruments and performs his wonders where one would least expect them. God is near to loneliness. He loves the lost, the neglected, the unseemly, the excluded, the weak and broken. I can relate to lowly. I can relate to weak and broken. How about you? They also devoted themselves to prayer and praise. Now, there's a definite article in the Greek before prayers. It means the prayers. It could mean um, regular prayers that the Jews prayed when they were in the temple. It could mean regular times that they got together. But remember, these are Jewish converts that we are talking about. And corporate prayer had played an important part within Judaism. And these first Christians, being Jewish, continued the tradition along with now greater fervency and greater focus. And while it certainly included appointed, appointed prayers, regular times of prayers, it also included times in the homes or, or personal prayer. It was a priority. The Christian faith was a day-to-day reality, not just some, you know, couple-hour interruption or, you know, I'm going to do God a favor and show up to church kind of thing. When you change the way you pray, everything else changes. We have to believe that God can do things that only he can do. You've heard me say these things before. But I would rather fail in asking God for big things and attempting the impossible than resting in what I can do myself. And I was praising God this morning as I got up, 
went through my prayer list of praying for elders and, and our other leaders and staff and realizing, wait a minute, God has answered that prayer. God has answered this one. And, 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 and my heart began to swell just thanking God for the way that he had responded and he had already intervened. Samuel Chadwick said, the one concern the devil, the one concern of the devil is to keep Christians from praying. He fears nothing from prayerless studies, prayerless work, and prayerless religion. He laughs at our toil, mocks at our wisdom, but he trembles when we pray. Proverbs 15.8 reminds us that the sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but the prayer of the upright is his delight. The early Christians didn't just add Christianity kind of as an addendum to their life but they devoted themselves to these practices of the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to worship and and prayer. Prayer is the true measure of a person, speaking of our spiritual sense. And I'd say it's the true measure of a church, is it not? A church will not be greater than its prayer life. Our potential is directly proportional to our prayer life. It's the single biggest indicator of us making progress in the kingdom of God. We also read in verse 47 that they were praising God. Again, corporate, individual expressions of praise can be included. I mean, this was a worshiping bunch. And I seriously doubt that because they, they were overwhelmed by the glory of Jesus, I seriously doubt there were worship wars going on at this time about the kind of music. I seriously doubt that as the thousands gathered together, they were complaining about it. Hey, would you guys pipe down? It's just a little loud in here. I seriously doubt it. See, prayer and praise were priorities. And as a church... We have to ask ourselves, how can we further elevate this expression of of prayer and praise? How can we grow in our participation? It's a a good question for you life groups to, to ask ourselves as you talk about the truth of this passage. How can I increase my participation in prayer and praise? And so starting next year, we've had quarterly worship sessions together where we get together here besides on Sunday morning. Uh, We're going to start doing them every month with a special emphasis on prayer, special instruction uh, about participation, individual instruction about prayer. Now, we've seen these behaviors of the early church, of these items, but we also see within this passage some things that were happening as a result of what the Holy Spirit was producing in terms of of fruit because the church was participating in these things. And all this is is spirit-induced. I don't want to ever imply that this was somehow manufactured just on a human level. What was some of the fruit that was taking place? Number one, there was supernatural intervention. Listen to this. And awe came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. 
The force of the Greek here indicates that the apostles were continuously doing miracles and, and, and wonders. And the people were constantly filled with awe, not just in an instant here. Now, it's certainly true that God did wonders through the apostles. We made this point last week. But we would be amiss if we did not point out that the signs and the wonders and the miracles were done outside of the original 12 through others who were not of the original 12. Stephen, Philip, Ananias, Paul, Agabus, Barnabas, daughters of Philip the Evangelist, were not numbered amongst the original 12, but we read of them prophesying, healing, exercising demons, even raising the dead. Now, there is not one particular sign that God did other than the fruit of the Spirit. I think that we can bank on when we're filled with the Spirit. When God does these signs, that's up to God to do how he wants to do it. And I'm not going to dictate how he does it. All I, all I can believe is that God will intervene. And I think he will do so supernaturally. And perhaps the greatest miracle of all, and we kind of skip over this, but it's very plain in the text. It's, it's what the whole chapter of Acts 2 is about. You have Jews who are praising God, submitting to God, taking in the apostles' teaching about Christ, proclaiming Christ, and these were some of the same people who previously were calling out, crucify him. They They were party to the crucifixion. And then Peter preaches a message that grips their heart, they come under the conviction of God, and God transforms them from a rebel into a follower of Christ. That is the greatest of miracles when God transforms people. Where you have a life that was lived on its own and now lives in submission to the will of God. In my mind, it's still the greatest miracle of all. Does God intervene today? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I look out amongst some of you, and I've heard your stories of God transforming you, of changing you from darkness to light. God takes a darkened heart and makes it into a servant of Christ. So much so that our passage says, all came upon every soul. I mean, from ridicule to worship, these believers had, had great respect for God and his power and what he did. This was a, a godly fear, an a overwhelming consciousness of God in their midst. And all can come about through witnessing how God has intervened. He's intervened in miracles. He's intervened in transformed lives. And you know how else he's intervened? Romans 1 talks about this. He has intervened through creation. Sarah Salviander is a research scientist in the field of astrophysics. A lifelong atheist, Sarah became a theist, a believer in God. 
as an undergraduate physics student when she came to believe that the universe was too elegantly organized to be an accident. She's currently a researcher at the astronomy department at the University of Texas at Austin and a part-time assistant professor in the physics department at Southwestern University. Her parents, she said, were socialist and political activists and were also atheists. And in her testimony, Sarah wrote this. It's amazing that for the first 25 years of my life, I met only three people who identified as Christian. My view of Christianity was negative from an early age. Looking back, I realized a lot of this was the unconscious absorption of the general hostility toward Christianity that is common in places like Canada and Europe. So she began to focus on her physics and math studies, and she joined campus clubs, starting to make friends, and for the first time in her life, she met some Christians. And I quote, she said, they weren't like atheists and agnostics I knew. They were joyous and content, and they were smart too, and I was astonished that my physics professors, whom I admired, were Christian. Their personal example began to have an, an influence on me, and I found myself growing less hostile to Christianity. Sarah then joined a group in the Center for Astrophysics and Space Sciences, something I'm sure all of us have had experience in, and that was researching evidence for the Big Bang. And that was a turning point, because if you know anything about the Big Bang, it says that the Earth had to have a beginning. So what happened to give that beginning? There had to be something that started it. She continued, I started to sense an underlying order to the universe. Without knowing it, I was awakening to what Psalm 19 tells us so clearly. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. It's unmistakable. And as a result, she was awed by God and drawn to Christ. People are also drawn to Christ and his followers. It's one of the fruits that comes about when genuine Christianity is lived out, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. There was unity. There was this devotion to the daily worship in the temple. There was love for one another, and the Lord was multiplying the church. People were attracted to the joy of these believers as they praised God. Evangelism was not a big event necessarily, nothing wrong with that, not, not just some program, but at its essence, at its essence, it was people to people. It was seeing the way Christians were living their lives and, and being attracted to that winsomeness. People wanted to be with these contagious, praising Christians. And I would suggest our best evangelism comes by exhibiting genuine joy and humility and an authentic, vulnerable community. Are there problems? Yes. Are there Christians that don't get it? Certainly so. But authentic Christianity at its best is this authentic community, this Joy, genuine joy amongst believers. And this created goodwill amongst the general populace, at least for a time. And there was an aroma 
that drew others to Christ. Now, I realize there's also opposition, and that's going to take place, certainly. But for those whose hearts, their hearts are open, they see that there's something there that they haven't experienced. They demonstrated a winsome attractiveness. You see, Christianity really is a lovely thing. And I know the culture wants to say otherwise. But it's indeed a lovely thing at its best. Now, there are many Christians who are good, but they also have a a hard edge to them. They really know little about grace and love. J.P. Struthers was a Scottish pastor from over 100 years ago. And he used to say that it would help the church more than anything else if Christians would do, this is a Scottish phrase, a bonnie thing. If they would do a bonnie thing consistently. It's the idea of of kindness, a soft-heartedness toward others, not quick to judge, giving people the benefit of the doubt. That is distinctly Christian. We talk about tolerance in our society, and it's really, uh, it's a a bastardization, (laughs) what we see in our culture, of a Christian tolerance that should be there in all of our hearts, where we can tolerate people no matter who they are, what lifestyle they choose, we give people value. But you see, now that's no longer based upon an image of God quality in our culture. It's based on the, the specific characteristic of maybe their ethnicity or their sexual proclivity. And as such, you can't derive human value from those things. Human value comes that I'm made and every person is made in the image of God. So they're deserving of respect. This creates a true tolerance. I can love my homosexual neighbor. I can love the the neighbor who had an abortion and and have compassion. Not sit there with a 15 Bible verses on what they did was wrong, but show them love and be winsome in my witness. There's a kindness. There's a soft-heartedness that's not quick to judge. There's the ability to keep your mouth shut with all the knowledge that you have and realize that you don't have to dispense it like a truckload upon other people. A church can add to its number with a lot of programs, with a lot of different things. But we cannot add to our power. That's a God thing. We can only receive the power that's there. We can get out of the way of what God wants to do. But when, when God adds to the number and the power through, through his means, that creates a mighty movement. And that's what we read about in Acts chapter 2. My prayer is that God would move in Christ Community Church as we devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching to prayer, to the breaking of bread, to praise. These elements in worship that we realize are are critical for our very life as it reminds us that we have a holy God who's been awfully good to us. Let's pray.